0: Welcome to this week's edition of Good Books Radio. Audiobooks.com is the chief underwriter for Good Books Radio, which is produced by UTRGV Media Services for Rio Grande Valley Public Radio. And now, here's your host, Dr. John Cook.
1: Welcome once again to another edition of Good Books Radio. I'm your host this week, Dr. John Cook, and with me today... Our two history professors from my old school, LSU, Louisiana State University, Dr. Nancy Eisenberg is the T. Harry Williams Professor of American History at Louisiana State University and the author of the New York Times bestseller, White Trash, the 400-year-old Untold History of Class in America, as well as Fallen Founder, The Life of Aaron Burr, and Sex and Citizenship in Antebellum America. She is co-author with Andrew Burstein of Madison and Jefferson. Dr. Andrew Burstein is the Charles P. Manship Professor of History at Louisiana State University and author of 10 previous books on early American politics and culture, including The Passions of Andrew Jackson and Democracy's Muse. He and Nancy Eisenberg have co-authored regular pieces for National News Outlets. Welcome to the program.
2: Good to be with you.
1: This is a great read, and it's a really poignant thing now to look back at the philosophies of the two Adams presidents. Uh, they had something important to offer, and it, it was rare in that, their, their day. Let's start with the exordium a little bit, because uh, it starts out with a, a statement that's really important, I think. You know, we're all taught in school that, that uh, this country is about freedom and democracy, um, and maybe that's not true of this country maybe we're not a democracy.
0: Well, I think one thing to remember is that even if we look at the Constitution, which I'm sure you're aware of, um, it was designed as a republic, not a democracy. And John Adams believed that it is the House that's supposed to be the most democratic branch. And he wouldn't be horrified that it has become the Millionaire's Club. Um, So I think we've assumed we had a democracy because it's been more of a rhetorical democracy. We we celebrate the Declaration of Independence. We celebrate the idea. We assume a democracy is about gaining equality. All men are created equal. But that's not the case. That's not true. We've also had a long history of disenfranchising voters. We have the Electoral College, which uh, in a sense has undermined the idea of one person, one vote. So I think uh, we, we imagine ourselves a democracy where, if you actually look at the institutional, constitutional, and historical background, that hasn't been the way our government has functioned, particularly if we think about the role of parties, which the Constitution never anticipated. And parties serve the interest of parties, not the interest of democracy.
2: The Adamses um, had a definition, which is useful for us to remember. Uh, that you can't have a democracy without education or without empathy or without an informed citizenry. And the informed citizenry is the uh, direct translation uh, from um, uh, their, it's the language they used, it's the vocabulary the newspapers used, um, it underlies what's in our Constitution. And where we look today at the most democratic space we have, which is the Internet, And we see that it is democratic, but it does not privilege educated opinion. This is what we're all concerned about when we review the election of 2016 or anticipate the election of 2020, that in cyberspace, all opinion is essentially equal and people seek out whatever confirms their existing biases. But even though the Adamses didn't foresee the internet, obviously, they did foresee Uh, in the time of the French Revolution, democracy run amok, which is to say what they foresaw was irrational behavior spurred on by bad information, understanding human psychology for what it was. And that's why we find them so interesting uh, and why we consider that they can still talk to us today.
1: Mm-hmm. And, and these two were, were powerful intellects that they read voraciously. They wrote uh, more than a lot of people did in their era. And they, their contemporaries were also intelligent, but uh, uh, cut from a different cloth. I'm thinking particularly of, of people like Thomas Jefferson and, and uh, Andrew Jackson.
2: Well, though the, the two that you mentioned, um, they knew well and um, uh, both admired uh, Jefferson and understood him as he was, both as a human being and as a political uh, figure. And um, uh, we developed the relationship that each has with Jefferson, um, individually and collectively, uh, over the years, because it's a fascinating one. Um, but John Quincy Adams, uh, who abandoned the Federalist Party, the party uh, of uh, that had elected uh, his father president just a few years earlier, he abandoned that party in order to team up with Jefferson and Madison because he agreed with their foreign policy. And John Adams, his father, who had been defeated by Jefferson, wholeheartedly supported his son's defection. Uh, this incidentally uh, was heralded by President Kennedy in uh Profiles and Courage, um, that John Quincy Adams um exhibited courage in his political independence, uh, something that he inherited, a quality inherited from his father, um that they did not that they held themselves above any formal partisan affiliation and um uh you know, that, that they could uh, um, come back to a Jeffersonian, Madisonian perspective without abandoning their own, showing um, that you know party loyalty wasn't the be-all and end-all for them.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, why I like John Adams is, you know, he didn't believe in fairy tales. He relies heavily on history. As you know, we highlight th- that both of them loved Cicero, um, and they believed that all governments could fail. And this is, again, where he you know, parts company with with Jefferson, who seemed to be promoting a more optimistic national self-image, or that Andrew Jackson, who becomes the hero of the common man. But the problem with that is that with Jackson, that whole image was manufactured. He's the first presidential candidate to have a campaign biography. Um, He's celebrated as both the hero and he celebrated as the hero of the common man. But in fact, the real Jackson is everyone who knew him, knew him as imperious, as arrogant, and he becomes known as the democratic autocrat. And this is the problem that we tend to have, is that when parties become so powerful and when parties invent images and invent images to be marketed to voters, the voters are often more caught up in the image over the substance and this is what adams critique where he was really spot on where he said that voters are spectators politics is theater and that essentially voters who will never take the stage live vicariously through idols and this is something that we need to be more aware of today because all parties the way they manufacture candidates um, engage in the engage in this business and we don't talk about policy we don't talk about substance and whether it's the internet or even television news it tends to not get into the substance of what the real issues that voters need to know about
2: mm-hmm. and just as a postscript here on andrew jackson um <laughs> the founders uh including jefferson you know who who's associated with jacksonian democracy somehow um uh all recognized that Jackson was an empty suit, as it were, an empty buckskin suit, I guess, um, <laughs> that he was intellectually uh, um, undeveloped, shall we say, mm-hmm. and uh, that he stood for no policies. But the image uh, from the campaign biographies and from the news- newspaper editorialists, which was the dominant media of the time, presented him as the hero. He was known as the hero. And um, uh, no one asked to see his credentials, let alone his birth certificate. Mm -hmm. Um, (laughs) And, you know, so uh, the Adams has come across as being uh, incapable of getting that sort of, uh, having their persona marketed. They weren't interested in that. They and, and they saw as a pathology, the kind of democracy that would elect an Andrew Jackson, someone who was not intellectually suited, who had no policy background, who made poor judgments. Uh, so, you know, this is how their critique developed, their critique about national saviors and um, uh, the unpopularity of inconvenient truths. Um, uh, there are no... There are no marble statues to the Adamses in Washington, D.C., um, because of the factor of popularity, not ideas. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they both were stubborn
1: intellectuals and uh, truth tellers who may, maybe told the truth too harshly. But let's, <laughs> let's go back to the, the, the image thing. The first glimpse we get of how much John Adams didn't like image over substance was when he was working with Ben Franklin as an envoy (laughs) in Paris, right?
0: Exactly. Now that's, we spent a lot of time in trying to understand that relationship because in in, in the end, you know, and we're not just kind of always defending John Adams. We're not putting him up on a pedestal because in, in ways he misinterpreted Franklin. But he definitely was aware and he observed that as he watched Franklin in France, he, virtually Franklin became the first American rock star. Um, he was embraced by the French aristocracy and literate, um, and they saw him as the image of the new world, man. And this is when Adams realized that you know to succeed in the world of celebrity, that you have to be your own trumpeter, and that was his word. You have to you know, get paintings done and statues made. And we kind of dissect their relationship and look at how they had very different philosophies for diplomacy. And both of these philosophies had their place, uh, that Adams wanted the United States to be more independent from the superpowers at that time, which were Great Britain and France. And Franklin was more realistic and realized that America wasn't in a position, we needed the support of French to win the American Revolution, and he realized that you had to, in a sense, flatter and pander to the French officials that he was dealing with.
2: Um, Adams had a great, one of, one of Adams's many great letters um, uh, to uh, a political ally uh, complaining about Franklin at the time uh, he wrote, "Men of great rep- reputations may do as many weak things as they please, but to remark their mistakes is to envy them." And so he uh, told his American friends, "You know, Franklin is envious of me. I'm not envious of him." <laughs> and that that kind of you know encapsulates the the you know the. the Adamsian personality. We, we, we like this adjective, Adamsian. I don't know if it's going to catch on. <laughs> <laughs> I get it. Well, well let, let's use
1: it again, then. The, let's talk about the Adamsian <laughs> democracy in defense of the Constitution, because there's some really poignant things there that could have been written today about wealth corrupting democracy and in, in economic inequality leading to
2: sedition and rebellion and
1: just, just really some, some powerful things that you think this could have been written today.
2: Yeah, well, you know, in the same way uh, that 9-11 and the war on terror had such a profound impact on uh, the, the political culture in this country, the French Revolution had a comparable impact. Uh, and the, the term that they used um, for a failure of democracy or a failure of the French Revolution was mobocracy. And it's a word that's uh, tossed about sometimes uh, these days as well and the john adams and john quincy adams who was by that time uh dispatched to europe uh by president washington while his father was vice president um as a, a diplomat <clears throat> um they were on the same page where they saw uh, what was happening in France as a failure of you know where democracy would fail, and uh, when you have critical thinking voted down by brutes and bullies, when um, uh, you know demagoguery uh, uh, you know takes center stage, um, we saw how uh, national security uh, changed. The whole conversation, and uh, whenever you have um, uh, a a small group of people, an oligarchy, a moneyed elite, a moneyed aristocracy this this comes from the adams or adamsian critique uh, receiving special favors, government contracts, industry lobbyists buying legislators' votes um the 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 discrimination. Uh, the squelching of uh, uh, any other voices um, in government—that's what the Adamses were worried about. All of these factors coming together at once. Mm-hmm. Yeah,
0: and for John Adams, you know, his greatest fear wasn't democracy. It was, as Andy said, it was oligarchy because they could—they—they they saw how demagogues can arise. And that often the appeal, the rhetoric, this is what happens with Andrew Jackson. There's all this appeal about, you know, representing the common man. But in fact, um, there were many states that still disenfranchised voters. Uh, this, was not, this was more a rhetorical democracy than an actual democracy. And on top of that, both John Adams and John Quincy Adams believed in, you know, that we were supposed to be a government of laws, not men, which really encapsulates their view of the cult of the critique of the cult of personality mm-hmm. that they believed you that class power would always creep into politics, that oligarchies were waiting in the wings, and that if you didn't create institutional checks and balances, if you didn't find a way to safeguard justice and democracy with rules and principles and fair proceedings, then you could easily lose your democracy. And that's why he said that democracies. Uh, could commit suicide because they're not foolproof unless you have the institutional checks, whether it's coming from the Constitution, whether it's coming from rules in Congress, all of these things are necessary. And for John Quincy Adams, he saw an oligarchy emerge, which was the planter oligarchy, which emerged hiding behind the facade of Jacksonian democracy and promoted Western expansion and wanted slavery to expand, and probably the least democratic group in the United States. The planter aristocracy were the ones who were often spouting democratic rhetoric. Yes, yes.
2: yes. This this happens um, when fear overtakes rational argument, and that, too, is uh, central to the Adamsian critique. John Adams uh, wrote at one point Um, that in such a situation, under such conditions, those with the deepest purse and the fewest scruples generally prevail. So in thinking of oligarchy and democracy as two governing systems equally subject to corruption, whether it's the mob in a democracy, um, fear overtaking rational argument, or um, the power of the oligarchs, the moneyed few who don't want to yield power because they like exercising power, these point to imperfections in the human character. And the picture that, especially John Adams, but later John Quincy as well, drew, the the picture that they drew um, was not one that was critical of the United States, but neither was it um, that sort of glowing optimism of the Jeffersonian script. And it's the reason why we don't remember the Adamses the way we rep- uh, remember uh, Jefferson or Jeffersonian democracy, because um, it was a, Jefferson didn't recognize or didn't speak to the element of fear uh, as a, a pervasive threat to the system, to the institutions of, of government in our republic.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Uh, perhaps, you know, it was John Quincy Adams who said it best. He said, uh, and this was the most that he would say for democracy, even though he was the first uh, to call America uh, publicly a rep- rep- representative democracy. That was in his inaugural address in 1825. But the most he would say about democracy was that it was oxygen or vital air. Mm-hmm. That is to say essential for life but combustible and deadly in combination with other elements. So he saw democracy. He and his father both saw democracy as oxygen, essential for life but combustible.
1: Well, now let's, let's do another Adamsian, Adamsian di- dialectic. <laughs> Uh, th- right. because they look at the oligarchy and the fears of, of what that becomes, if that gets too powerful, and the income inequality. But also they observed the, the so-called democracy of the French Revolution, which became a mobocracy. And well, not
0: only a mobocracy, it ended up turning into a, a new empire, with mm-hmm. Napoleon becoming an emperor. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is something that John Quincy Adams observed firsthand. Um, so th- one of the things that we love about them is that they were – they understood that politics was about human psychology, as Andy highlighted. You have the powerful force of fear. You also, they focus on the, that no one is immune to the temptation of fame. And these are very powerful forces that are in all human beings. And you have to create government to, to deal with them and not assume that magically voters are going to know their self-interest or magically they're going to be able to see through the fog and, and understand policies. And I think that's the tension that we still grapple with today is that we have a mythic democracy of how we want to imagine the American people versus that the people can often be irrational. And that's across the board. That isn't one party or the other. Mm-hmm. And that's, I think, something that the atoms are useful to remind us of. And we need to be reminded. If we want to save our democracy, we have to work to protect it.
1: Mm-hmm. Now, I, I do want to turn in the last five minutes a little bit to John Quincy, but before we leave John Adams' mm-hmm. presidency, let's just talk about uh, how he felt about the 1800 election and uh, Hamilton's manipulation conspiratory politics, conspiratorial politics, he called it at one point.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think this is the other side that's often left out of the story, is that part of the reason that John Adams ends up losing the election of 1800 is because Alexander Hamilton undermined his re-election, and it's also a dangerous example of how he manipulated things behind the scenes and manipulated people who had been selected to vote for the Electoral College. Um, And that corruption began from the very beginning. So yes, you have a divided party, and finally you know john adams had had enough he had to dismiss people from his cabinet uh he went against hamilton who wanted to go to war with france he pulled back from that because he got intelligence from his son which he trusted and came up with a diplomatic solution uh but yes the election of 1800 was very contentious uh there was a lot of violence and uh you know verbal attacks i mean this is when john adams is referred to as his rotundity Mm -hmm. You know, again, identifying him with a monarch because he's portly and fat. (laughs) um, So you have this really contentious election, and then you have people behind the scenes. And they saw this up close and personal, that democracy isn't what we think it is when you have powerful forces manipulating the outcome of elections.
1: And I I think it's ironic that they uh, referred to him in some kind of aristocratic sense because he rose from humble beginnings with his 40-acre farm in New England and uh, was hardly an aristocrat in any sense of the word. He certainly didn't amass any wealth to speak of.
2: Precisely. And both he and John Quincy Adams never got rich.
1: Mm -hmm. Now, John Quincy Adams was a prodigy because, in part because, his father took him as a pre-adolescent over to Europe where he learned a whole lot about diplomacy from what he observed.
0: Yeah, this is one of the things we highlight about the difference between the two of them is that John Adams, much more identified with New England, he had a more provincial uh, way of, of looking at himself. And, you know, and in, a, in a positive way, he treasured the New England town meeting. But John Quincy Adams, I mean, was at a very young age, is thrust into Europe, he's traveling around the world, and he is uh, acting as a translator. So he has a more cosmopolitan upbringing. And and this is where they parted company.
2: Mm -hmm. Uh, John Quincy Adams was present with his father uh, during the signing of the peace treaty that ended the Revolutionary War in 1783. And uh, a generation later, the next, uh, what's sometimes referred to as the Second American Revolution, John Quincy Adams was the lead negotiator at the Treaty of Ghent that ended the War of 1812. Um, and so there's, you know, sort of a, rem- not, not just are these two Adamses, uh, senior diplomats and more experienced in, in cosmopolitan circles in Europe, uh, than any other, uh, American, uh, of their, uh, generation. Uh, John Quincy actually grew up, as Nancy was saying, in the circle of European nobility. He, um, when uh, President Madison uh, dispatched him to become the U.S. minister in St. Petersburg, he became friends, uh, not close friends, but friends with the Tsar Alexander, um, who he uh, discussed the War of 1812 with. And Alexander uh, suggested that he, that he try to broker a deal between the U.S. and, and Britain. Um, so. Uh, their lives, such storied lives, their correspondence, such storied correspondence. And unfortunately, you know, our historic memory in this country is such that we remember, you know, I mean, what if you go to Washington, uh, D.C., you've got to see the the Jefferson Memorial. But there is no Adams Memorial, and uh, they don't have as spirited as they were in life they are thought about as cold slabs of marble today. And so hopefully our book will uh, serve as a remedy in that way. Is- yeah,
0: and if you read their writings, I mean, they had a wonderful sense of humor. John Adams wrote in a very
2: uh,
0: a, a novelistic way. And on top of that, uh, the fact that they loved fiction, they loved the picaresque novel, which is like Don Quixote, They 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 have this that one of john quincy adams uh, most f- favorite, favorite picaresque novel he he quoted before the supreme court in the amistad defense so the they they are all, they are clearly men of letters but across the board they loved satire they loved history uh, and they absorbed everything and they read everything and that's and, and it influenced their very powerful critique of the world that they saw up close and the world that they saw through the printed page
2: and this is also because the novels of their day um, had a strong moral underpinning to them, not in a in a, in a platitudinous way um, but um there there was a, a sense of uh, an individual's integrity of morality which uh, they um, transfer to to government it's like you know nancy's talking about novels in which there's an anti-hero um and it's part of the satire of the age which is wonderful and and we try to capture that but they also you know they show the common man as someone with integrity and you know we can think of hollywood films that 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 have anti-heroes who are beloved in in a similar way. So in that way, we can connect the fiction of the 18th, early 19th century to today. And the the fact, too, that they actually incorporated that uh, identification into their belief of the, the combination between an educated citizenry and a morally conscious citizenry. So if they had an optimistic outlook about the American Republic, it was that the more we read, the more informed we were, the more empathetic we became, the more we extended ourselves generously um the more the republic would function as a representative democracy, the more moral clarity we would receive from government.
0: And I think and the anti-hero theme is important because it also informs the way in which they didn't want to just you know, follow the consensus. They didn't just want to follow the party line. And this is why John Quincy Adams could be such a powerful force in Congress where he was elected in 1830, after he'd served as president, and he was willing to stand up to the powerful slave interests and defy the gag rule, which said that no congressman could even mention slavery and undermine First Amendment rights. He was able to do that because he not only adopted moral courage, but he also adopted this idea that you have to, uh, you know, go against the grain To get at the truth and not just echo what you hear around you.
2: Mm -hmm. That's this is why President Kennedy. Uh, included John Quincy Adams in his profiles of courage in 1956.
1: Mm -hmm. That'll have to be the final word because we're out of time. This is a great read. It's a spellbinding story, and I was fascinated through all of it. The book is by Nancy Eisenberg and Andrew Burstein. The title is The Problem of Democracy, The President Adams Confront the Cult of Personality. I remind our listeners, if you don't catch our regularly scheduled broadcast, you can find our books on YouTube at Good Books Radio, Strong and Cook. I'm your host, Dr. John Cook. Thanks for listening.